2: Hey Ilya, how you doing today? Hey, I'm doing just great. How are you doing? I'm doing super well, and uh, we keep saying that we're going to do this in the same room again together now that we're all vaxxed and we haven't done it yet and we're still not doing it. So uh, here I am looking at you on Zoom. (laughs) You know what? That's just fine. Uh, But this is a special
3: episode. Special episode time. Something that uh, we don't have that many of, and this is just the sixth. In
2: fact, this is the sixth one of them that we've ever done.
3: Well, we've done a couple other special episodes, but the sixth... War story episode, and you know this is one of our most popular special episodes. I get people who tell me, "Oh my god, I, I listened to the War Stories episode, and that epi- that story from you know fill in the blank was so great, it totally stuck with me." And you know what was uh was either funny or moving or sad or it could have been uh, yeah. a, a million different things. But well, you know what's uh, always
2: interesting is like you know we always tell people what the war story is. We always give them a sample to listen to, and uh, what they come up with. Is is always a, an amazing indicator of how they view themselves in the work. It's it's uh it's a really fascinating thing because you know we don't necessarily coach them through it. Sometimes if they don't have a good one at their fingertips during the interview, one will come up, and then probably two thirds of our uh, of our interviews when we talk to them about the war story, they're like, oh, I got a good war story for you. So. Uh, They're all a lot of fun.
3: Well, we got a dozen war stories uh, in this episode, and we're going to kick things off with a classic. We did run this one uh, in an
2: episode, but now it's in this compilation from Jim Frona. Jim Frona. That is like going way, way, way back. So Jim Frona, DP of Transparent. That was what we were talking to him about uh, at the time. Also, I Heart Dick, which I think was brand new on Amazon at the time to throw a timestamp on this probably about what five years ago
3: and his uh, war story is from a time much before that when he was working on a very famous
2: commercial here's jim frona's war story
4: after a certain amount of time gaffing i started getting opportunities to do b camera or an additional camera on commercials and could feel this thing rising up in me like i could maybe do that someday Along came this huge job in San Francisco for Sony Bravia TVs, where we launched something like 250,000 super balls down the steep streets of San Francisco. I was hired by this longtime DP I worked for to be there as gaffer and camera operator. The night before we were going to start shooting, the DP had to leave for a family emergency. I had been just involved enough with the prep and in the war room or the you know conference room figuring out where all the cameras, all eight cameras were gonna be that at the point in the night when he got the call and had to leave, I was suddenly the one in the room who knew the camera plan. I looked at the producer and AD and said, I could shoot this. conferred and came back out and said, all right, you're going to be the DP. So there I was sitting in my hotel room wondering, am I going to be able to do this? There are 24 people in the camera department. I'm going to you know, wake up in four hours because I couldn't sleep and you know, show up on set. And they're going to say, oh, what happened? You're the DP. And from showing up on set to when we launched the first air cannons of all these super balls, this magnificent you know, downpour of Super Bowls in San Francisco. I was panicking, but once the, the first launch was done and how much fun I was having and how I was able to communicate so easily with the camera operators and be myself and make creative decisions in the moment, I had this you know, rush of exuberance, joy, possibility, whatever, and, and this voice inside me saying, well, if you can handle this, I think you're ready to be a DP.
3: All right, so next up is a war story from one of my favorite episodes during the pandemic, Bruce Van Dusen. He has an incredible story uh, involving Crazy Eddie, and here it is. In
5: 1977, there's a electronics retailer, Crazy Eddie. He is all over the airwaves, and his commercials are the most obnoxious commercials you can imagine. They're just one puffy-faced Irish Catholic guy who screams at the lens for 30 seconds about low prices. It's Crazy Eddie's greatest grand opening sale ever. All great Crazy Eddie stores are celebrating the grand opening of Crazy Eddie's new... Commercials are obnoxious and everywhere. So my theory was if I could get to this guy, I might be able to convince him that there's a better way to do it. And at 23, I figured I knew exactly how to do that. I want him to be my biggest client. So I meet a guy who knows a guy and that guy knows, a guy and he's arranged a meeting where i can go out to talk to the people at crazy eddie so i go out to sheep's head bay horrible section new york cinder block building unmarked i go in guy comes over and says can i help you and i said i have an appointment with larry miller takes me over to larry miller sitting inside looking really depressed forlorn and not well and then i figured you know what that kind of makes sense because If you were the ad manager for Crazy Eddie, and you were like going to cocktail parties on weekends and you told people that, they would just think you were a total asshole. So he's sitting there, he doesn't really, he's not interested in me. I give him my big idea, which is, why don't you take famous movies that have music and we'll redo a scene in them. And instead of in, in, like The Wizard of Oz or in uh, Casablanca, instead of singing, here comes the wizard or his time goes by, they'll sing the crazy Eddie jingle. So Larry looks at me, he says, it's stupid. And I said, well, maybe it's not. And he goes, no, it really is stupid. He said, but let me think about it and I'll get back to you, which I know means fuck off. So I go back home, don't give it much thought. A week later, my phone rings, which I answer Van Dusen Films because it's just me. You know, it's like, hold please for, for Bruce. And it's Larry Miller, and he says, hey, I want you to uh, come and present those ideas of yours to Eddie. I said, okay, great. Should I come back out to Sheepshead Bay? He said, no, come to Roosevelt Hospital. I said, what? He said, it's a long story. Meet me at Roosevelt Hospital tomorrow at two o'clock. 1977, Roosevelt Hospital is not the kind of place you want to go if you have a health problem of any kind, health insurance of any kind, or any issue that might need people who can solve even a headache. It is it's a shithole hospital. I pull up in a cab, Miller's inside the building, and I go in and I said, why, wh- why are we here? He said, we're going to go see Eddie. I said, wh- what's Eddie doing here? He said, He's, uh, he got stabbed. I said, he, what? He said, yeah, he got stabbed uh, like 16 times. I said, what happened? He said, he was installing a stereo and he got attacked when he left. We're going to go up and see him. I said, this is gonna be terrible. He said, no, 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 he wants to stay busy. So we go through, get in an elevator, we go in and Larry goes, Bruce, Eddie. And what I'm looking at is a guy completely wrapped in gauze, bloodstains seeping through, He's got an arm in traction and a cast, a leg in traction. He's got two black eyes. He's got an oxygen hose up his nose and he's got something down his throat. It's like they brought me up here to do balloon tricks for the fucking terminally ill kid. So Miller says, okay, tell him your ideas. And I said, right now he goes, yeah, he hasn't got all day. And I think, really? He doesn't have all day. Okay, I start telling him the ideas. I spin it all really around Casablanca. At the end of it, Eddie grunts like three mm. times. He can't speak because now I learned his jaw is broken so it's wired shut, so it's just grunts. Mm. And Miller turns to me and goes, how much? To make just one, not two. I was not prepared for this at all. So I throw out a stupid number. I mean, I'm, I mean, I throw out a number that's so low, even if you didn't have any money, you'd pay me to make a commercial so you could show it to your friends. Eddie's quiet, grunts again. He starts to move his arm and that causes some incredible pain. So he starts screaming, a nurse runs in. And then Miller says, okay, when? And I said, what do you mean when? He said, Eddie just approved it. I said, yeah, okay, I guess, I guess we'll make it You know, next week. So I had so little money that all I could build for the set of Rick's Cafe American was one wall and then half an arch. I couldn't, because the art director had told me, you know, a whole arch, would that wall is gonna be like $800. I said, what about half an arch? He goes, oh, okay. So we shoot the spot. I hire a terrible, terrible Bogart impersonator. I look more like Bogart than this guy does, but it's what we could afford and he had the clothes. I hire a friend of mine to do a knockoff of the music. We do the commercial. It goes on the air.
6: Play it again.
7: Sam. Oh. When you think you're ready, come down to Crazy Eddie, the man who's got most everything in stereo sound. So come on now and put him to the test. See whose prices really are the best.
5: But two weeks later, because Eddie, Crazy Eddie decides to sponsor a showing of Casablanca, and he only shows this commercial. Play it again, Sam. So my commercial shows about 20 times. The Village Voice, which was the great independent newspaper in New York, writes a big article about the commercial saying, Eddie has done something that is amazingly not obnoxious. We don't know what's happened. They run a little photo of the ad. The next day, I started to be able to have people take my phone calls because it's like I'd made this and... Now, I was suddenly a New York commercial director.
6: Crazy Eddie will not ever be under
3: the sun. Crazy
5: Eddie,
6: his prices are insane.
8: <laughs>
2: All right, so that was Bruce Van Dusen and the next one is a very recent interview that we did with legendary Academy Award-winning sound designer Randy Tom and his insane experience doing some sound recording for the movie The Right Stuff. Here is Randy.
7: On the right stuff, we needed to record explosions because they you know planes crash and rockets crash and explode and burst into flames. And so I found out that there are these teams of people who work for the military who go out into the desert and diffuse bombs that have been dropped there as as part of training exercises, but which did not explode. And so out in the desert in Southern California, you have these vast expanses of empty desert that are part of military bases that have the occasional live bomb lying there and they have to get rid of them somehow. So I found one of these teams, got permission to go out and visit one of them to record these bombs blowing up and was taken on a Jeep out into the middle of the desert. Jeep stops. The driver looks over and he and I can see a guy's head off in the distance. And the driver says, okay, get out. You know, that's the guy you wanna talk to. Um, He's gonna explode a bomb out there and you can record it. And I'll be back in an hour. So he drives away. I walk about half of the distance to the guy who's working on the bomb. At that point, I can see that he's sitting straddle on this, you know, 12 foot long bomb like Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove and I didn't know whether I should approach him or not because the last thing I want to do is make this guy nervous or surprise him. But he sees me standing there, you know all these guys or almost all of them were from the south and had southern accents and so he yells, son if I was you I'd either come over here where I am or I'd get about a hundred yards further away because This thing might go off, and if it does, you might live, but I don't think you'd want to. (laughs) So like an idiot, I walked over to where he was, and uh, he finished attaching this uh, explosive device to the outside of the bomb. He blew it up, and that explosion is in the right stuff.
3: Next up is Adam Somner. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that that's our current episode. That's that's what's uh, up right now. And he's got a fantastic war story from the set of Gladiator.
0: During Gladiator, Russell was very competitive and he's and great. I mean, he was a fabulous bloke, red hot at the time, but great, you know. And um, so we was always having fun and bets. And we used to have jokes and wind him up and try and mess around with him and stuff and wind him up with jokes. But one day in the arena, when we were doing stuff, I, I, I was the second, you know, second AD, and I was you know, messing around with the grips, and we were saying, no, "You're fat, no, you're fat," you know. I could beat you in a race. I could beat you. So in these long setups, we started racing across the arena. So suddenly, you know as English crews do, and, and you know, and Terry Needham and my good friend, Mickey Wolfson, the prop man, you know, love a bit of, of, of bookying as well. And so we started doing, having bets and saying, well, I think my man can do you. So suddenly now I'm racing against other crew members on behalf of Terry, the first AD, and people, the challenges are coming in and we've run a few races and we're making some money and laughing and you know, what the fuck's going on? Stop messing, you know, Ridley, we're okay. We're just having a bit of fun. So Russell comes up and says, well, you know, I need to, um, you know, I need to be in the fucking race. I mean, man, I need to be in the fucking race too. You know, so Russ, so, so Terry says, well, of course, but you know, you've got to qualify. So we make Russell run some races to qualify to run me cause I was the champion. So at the end of the day, you know, we were setting up for a setup and then, uh, but we had it all set up. Now we had some hazard tape put up at the end of the arena. We'd really increase the race. Russell was you know stretching getting ready you know I, I, I think I had like I had Marlboro light on and Mickey Wilson was pinning on you know gladiator harriers on my back a number all the stupid you know the messing around and the silliness and all the crew are gathering and the extras are still in the stands and we're gonna have this race <laughs> I remember I never forget it was like being in those movies because I'm like I was so nervous. I remember like my tunnel vision going in like when you hear your heart breathe. <laughs> and then we're off. You know, we do the race of Russell's, you know, running ahead of me and I'm on his shoulder. And I feel myself just catching him because I used to be quite fast and I'm catching him and, I, and I've got him and, and he falls down and he tries to overstep and he slams down next to me and I keep going and go through the tape. And all the crew go, yeah, it's fucking great. Right. You know, like that. Well, most of the crew, because they bet with me, the stunts bet on Russell. And they lost. So suddenly this whole melee turns up, you know. And everyone's like shouting and shouting and screaming and Riddle's going, what the fuck's going on? And he's now, laugh- well, he's now seeing what happens. So he's laughing. So Russell's got the up now because he's like, he's falling over. So he brushes himself off. He's says, like, I want to fucking race you again. So I'm gonna do double or nothing. And, you know, Terry, you know, the AD gets the bullhorn because I'm like, you know, I'm thinking, well, I better race him again, maybe. You know, I should do it again, maybe, if he wants to. And Terry goes, right, Russell, no more racing today. That's your lot. And puts the radio down and says, get and He says, fuck off. And so I have to run off. And then Russell starts chasing after me up the hill. And anyway, that was, that was, all the crowd started booing and shouting. It was a, it was a madhouse, yeah. But the next day when we came back to work, Again, because of all the stupidity, I bandaged my knee. So, you know, I came in. I wasn't hurt, but I said, said, Russell, my running days are over, son. I've done my knee. And then, you know, at lunchtime, we swapped the bandage to the other leg and see if he noticed, (laughs) you know. But it was all the silliness in those movies. I mean, there was a time, I mean, again, you know, every old person says films used to be different. But that was a very special film. And, you know, Russell was a great sport. And we had so much fun with him. And, you know, and he is a good sport. And uh, we still do. So, you know. Yeah, hopefully I'll get Russell. We'll have a rematch one day soon. I hope. Yeah.
3: All right. Next up is a war story from Paul Cameron, who's got a war story from the set of uh, Man on Fire, uh, which, of course, is a Tony Scott movie, which uh, Adam Somner, who you just heard. He also worked on that. And here is the war story.
8: All right. So war story. I think one of the most memorable ones was on *Men on Fire*, and it, we were shooting outside of Puebla, south of Mexico City. We, you know, one of the few locations that we went to on the movie and. This is a, the end of the movie where uh, Denzel trades his, his life or Dakota Fanning's life and drives away and dies at the end of the movie and we have two days to shoot it and of course we get there and we just got slammed with just the worst downpours, uh, unimaginable, just pounding, pounding rain, pounding, pounding, pounding for about a day we couldn't, even, couldn't even shoot and then we get there the next day and, you know, we, we basically have to shoot the entire sequence in one day and the weather is just horrible and we shoot for four or five hours and everybody goes to lunch and so this particular day i'm sitting there looking at him and we're just upset and we know what are we going to do and he kind of screams like you know profanity and right behind him is this volcano that just erupts All of a sudden, this insane plume of ash comes out. I'm like, "Tony, look at it! You know, look at this!" And Tony's like, "Yeah, oh, great!" And the rain stopped, and the sun started to break. And we both looked at each other and and got on the walkie-talkie and get back here. Bring the camera car driver. Get Denzel out of the trailer. We're getting on the highway. We're going to shoot the end of the movie. So 10, 15 minutes later, we load up. The volcano's spewing, and you know, all, the, everybody's you know pretty much breaking. There's you know we have a few people from the crew, but basically, as we did on many shots, is I would let Tony operate, and then I would hand crank and then cap the lens and go backwards and crank it forward and cap it. So we shot the end of the film basically with this volcano going off in the back of Denzel's head. But now everybody comes back from lunch and I look at Tony and I realize, and, and we have about five hours of daylight and I realize he wants to reshoot everything that we shot the day before in the rain and all of the remaining work for the rest of the day in five hours. So there you go. It was quite insane five hours, and everybody was just slogging through the mud and grabbing the cameras, and Denzel was amazing, Dakota was amazing, and Rada Mitchell was amazing as the actress, and everybody, you know, at the end of it was completely exhausted, and the, the sun hit the horizon, and we all kind of collapsed and looked at each other, and that was kind of it. That was a hell of a day.
2: All right, so that was... Paul Cameron, and next up we have Javier Grobe and his amazing story about working on Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. Oh my God, check this out.
9: Total Recall came along. I originally interviewed and I wanted to be a focus puller, but they said, you know, it was just Vacano and Annette Heimlich. They said, well, Annette is the focus puller and just the cinematographer he's operating, so we would hire you as a second assistant. I said, okay. Uh, I took the job and then a month later just let a net start operating and so they moved me up to, to focus pooling. And that was like a, back in those days, 1989, an $80 million movie back then. It was like huge. It was like like surreal, to be honest. First of all, they took over Churubusco Studios in Mexico City, which is our only studio left. And back in those days, it was still intact. And And the, the movie had every studio available and every space and every square foot of the studio was taken by the company. And funny enough, it was next to my film school, so I could see my fellow students <laughs> across it, like, hey, I'm working over here. It was, it was big, what can I tell you? I mean, as big as like one day being in the set and then seeing Grace Jones coming in to say hi because she was invited by Arnold Schwarzenegger you know, as, her, as his guest. And, you know, it was incredible experience. Uh, those sets were huge, were amazing. And we would destroy every set, you know. The whole movie is so violent, you know. So like, you know, we would get to like the, what was it, a Hyatt or a Hilton Mars Hotel. Mm-hmm. The set was incredible, huge, big. And then a week after, we had destroyed it with explosions. So Damn. that was kind of like, you know, the motto for all the sets there. It was a big experience.
3: And that was Javier Grobe. And uh, coming up next is Eric Bronco. Uh, Eric Bronco has worked on a lot of music videos, and this is a particularly memorable music video for Eric Bronco. <laughs>
6: got a call from, from the gaffer I came up under saying that he was offered a music video in Tanzania but couldn't take it because his passport had expired. And did I want it? I said, absolutely. There are some great people involved with it. There's a really great music video director involved with it. So basically hopped on a plane to Tanzania like a week later. We land, the director quits, never shows up. And so, suddenly, the DP gets bumped up to director, and I get bumped up to DP. There's this kind of extraordinarily shady producer, who... There's just something off about this guy. We... I think I was on a fight rate for the week. I forget what it was. I'm sure it was probably like $200, but (laughs) whatever it was. And we ended up shooting more. We ended up shooting for two weeks. So at the end of the first week, the producer and I sit down and I'm like, hey, listen, just divide, you know, divide my rate by seven. And that's what I'll get for however many days we keep going. No problem. Uh, We get to the end of shooting two weeks later. uh, And at breakfast, he pulls me aside and he's like, hey, listen, I know that was our deal, but I don't think I can do that anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, yeah, I think I can just pay you for the first week and that's it. And I was like, absolutely not. I've lost my mind, we start fighting, we like, we're yelling at each other, we end up in my hotel room, and the artist hears us fighting, comes in, and it's like, what is going on, you guys down the hallway, what's happening? I explain, I was like, look, I'm supposed to get paid X amount of dollars, and he's not paying me that. The uh, artist is like, well, why not? producer's kinda now starting to get a little, like, a little sweaty. And he's like, well, uh, you know, uh, I had to spend this for this, and, and he's like, no, the, you know, the rapper goes, no, I gave you, I gave you money to pay the crew this morning the Producer's like no 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 that money had to go to here and this and that and uh, this and don't forget about this other thing we had to pay for and the rapper's like no 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 no. and after kind of like frivolously throwing money around for a week for two weeks has like a running tally in his mind of every penny that he's put out and the math does not add up you know i'm kind of watching this go down and there's just more and more entourage coming into my hotel room and one of them is eventually like hey listen you should probably get out of here <laughs> And so, I go, oh, all right, and I go, but first, I need the hard drives. I bend over, I'm in the safe, getting the drives out, put them in, a, like, trying to kind of sneakily put them in a bag so I have some kind of leverage with this producer to get paid, and I just hear, like, bang from behind me. <laughs> I turn around, the producer, who's probably, like, twice the size of the, of the rapper, is stumbling backwards, falls into a chair in the corner, and the two of them just start going at it like crazy. <laughs> Myself and the now gaffer are like, ah, oh boy. Oh. So we run downstairs. We were about to leave and check out of the hotel, and we're trying to round everybody up. We're downstairs in the in the in the lobby, like throwing bags on a bus. The rapper and the entourage come flying through the lobby of the hotel, get down to the driveway, look both ways, and then just dart off in a direction. We turn around, and then through the lobby comes huffing and puffing and utterly destroyed. Comes the producer, bloodied, broken orbital socket, like one eye is lower than the other, and he is running through, through the hotel lobby, drenched in blood, waving a machete, screaming, I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> gets down, gets down to the end of the driveway, looks, doesn't see the guys, turns around, locks eyes with me, and just starts walking towards me with this machete in his head. And I'm like, I don't know what my plan is here. I'm looking, I'm like, there's nowhere to run, I don't know what's going on. I kind of back up, and I kind of put myself next to a garbage can. And I'm like, when he gets close enough, I'm throwing the garbage can at him and I'm taking off. <laughs> so I'm kind of waiting. It feels like forever. It's closer, 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 and out of nowhere, a SWAT team emerges. Hit into the wall, like, you know, karate chop his elbow. Knife drops out, and I'm like, "Oh my god, thank you so much." That was that was so scary. Thanks, thanks for saving my life. And they go, "No, no, 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 you're all coming downtown." <laughs> and so the entire film crew <laughs> gets gets put on a police bus. We're taken down to the, the station in Dar es Salaam. A while later, this guy comes, extraordinarily regal guy, in like full you know police kind of military esque uniform. He's like, looks at us and he's like, uh, "You're the guys my son told me about. Yeah, you're the film crew." And we're like. Who's your son? It turns out that our driver was the son of the chief of the secret police. <laughs> and so, this guy basically is like, you know, I'm very sorry for the inconvenience, you're free to go now. You know, opens up the door, we're walking out. As we walk out, the producer walks in and is like, there they are, those are the people that that did this to me. Like, ten cops, pounce on him, tack him to the floor. Again, the, the chief is like, sorry about that. <laughs> Don't mind him. Uh, we take off. We go, we go to a different hotel where the rapper and his buddies are just like hanging out and kicking it and having drinks. And they're like, hey, you made it. <laughs> like, what is going on? It turns out that the producer, the whole music video was a farce. The producer was an American, got himself in trouble, and owed money to gem smugglers. He figured the best way to pay them back was to get a music video over to shoot there and, own, and pay for everything in cash. And he was just skimming cash off the top of the, off the top of the budget. As far as we can tell, use that cash to hire dirty cops to come looking for us, presumably to kill us. And that's the story of how I shot my first music video. All right, so that was Eric
2: Bronco, and now we have the amazing Tommy Maddox Upshaw talking about a, uh, let's say, somewhat sketchy producer who. Uh, Got him and a bunch of friends in a bit of a sticky situation up north in Canada.
10: I ended up on a movie for a network and the director told me that things seemed to be a little bit funny. They were in Canada and I was supposed to go up there and he was just like, something doesn't seem right about the production. And I'm like okay, you know, I was like, well, I'm supposed to fly into Toronto, but I haven't got my, my, my work papers. He's like, yeah, I'm here. You know, when you get here, we'll wait a day or two. We'll go down to the border and get the papers. We got to drive across the border or come back. I was like, okay, sure, whatever. He's like, yeah, if they ask, just say you're here taking pictures and then then we'll go get the visa. Like when you land, you know, immigration has going to ask yourself where they may not even stop you. Load all my stuff up, get on the plane, fly to Toronto, I about to walk across the line to the country of Canada, you know, inside the airport. And you know, they're waving to everybody just to keep going forward. And then they point to me and they're like, to the left. I'm like, okay. I go to immigration and they get there and says, so what are you doing here? I said, I'm here on vacation and uh, taking pictures. And like, are you sure about that? I'm like, yeah, I'm just I'm just here on vacation, I'm totally lying about it. They're like, how long do you plan to stay? I was like, oh, maybe like a few weeks or something like that. They're like, and you're just taking pictures? I was like, yeah, they're like, what do you do for a living? I was like, I'm a photographer, I'm a cinematographer. They're like, okay, all right, go ahead. They let me through. I get picked up by this production folks. We're like in Toronto where, you know, I have all my stuff in a hotel. A couple of days go by, we have some meetings, a, a read through, and then they're like, all right, we're gonna go get the working papers. Uh, we just got to drive to the border over by Niagara Falls. We drive to the border Niagara Falls. We're sitting in there. The producer, the local producer from Canada goes to the immigration people. We're sitting in in the building, the immigration spot. We're at Niagara Falls. And we notice like 45 minutes has gone by and the the producer hasn't come back out. And we're in there with the cast, the director, myself, and we're, we're sitting there, an hour and 15 minutes go by, and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, you guys, we need to talk to you. Immigration from Canada. They walk us into a back room, and they're like, yeah, your stuff's not in order for you guys to work here. We were not given a heads up about it, and they shouldn't, and we look at the local producer, and they go, and this guy should know better. And we're like, what does that mean? And they're like, he should know better because of his past. And we're like, what is going on? And then, a couple of the cast members had another life before they became actors but they usually get like a written thing from their lawyers but because this guy didn't do the due diligence they get taken into an additional room these a couple of the actors because of their past history which they've been exonerated for and all this and that but it still comes up through these immigration forms they get held back there at this point it's like two and a half three hours inside of the border immigration Canada. Eventually they're like, okay, you guys, we're gonna let you guys go, but you can't enter Canada. Like, huh, what do you mean? They're like, yeah, you're going back to the United States. We're at Niagara Falls. They booted us out of Canada. (laughs) CA, all these people on the phone, I'm calling my agent. The director at this point has not talked (laughs) for like 45 minutes. He's stone cold because he's pissed. He saw the writing on the wall when he first got there, how janky these producers were. And we're doing this for like a small studio at the time. I get in the the rental car and the immigration lady from from Toronto, she takes our passports and she tosses them in my lap. (laughs) And we drive to Niagara Falls to this hotel that they had to book like Immediately, we had none of our luggage, not even a toothbrush. This janky producer had to go buy us like underwear and and, like toothbrushes and toothpaste. We got booted out of Canada for like a week while he put together all of our correct papers to come back and finish this little movie. But I'll never forget it. The the director was like he was like he was in such shock (laughs) that he didn't talk at one point for like. And I I was just like calling my wife like, we have been deported. And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm back in the United States and we're not allowed to get our stuff because this producer did not have our working papers in order. We eventually finished the movie, but these producers are so janky that, you know, we got deported. (laughs) It's
2: a great story.
3: All right. next up is maurice alberti and this is a little bit of a different note uh, so definitely a, a somber war story from maurice alberti and here it is
1: so we were doing this movie called me and isaac newton about what inspired a scientist but it took us to this eighth clinic that took on all those children who had been abandoned by their family because they had AIDS. A lot of family, you know, throw the mom out or throw the kids out. And there was, of course, a lot of South African lady who worked there. It was kind of in the middle of the bush a little bit. We got into this little white room and those two black ladies were holding this little boy who was wailing a little bit, who was, who was crying. And it was heartbreaking because I think he was in pain or trying to sleep, you know. And we were filming and, you know, we're filming uh, with, in 16 mm with the Atom camera, with, with, which I own. And at some point I ran out of film. So I put my camera down, my assistant gave me the mag, I click it on, you know, advance a few frames, camera back on the shoulder. And then the little boy had stopped, I stopped crying. And in my head, oh, he fell asleep, great, you know. And then those two ladies take this white piece of clothes and wrap him in the piece of clothes and put him on the little basket and start to cry and chant and and I like I realized this little boy just died in front of us and I'm crying and you know you should film so you cannot take the eye off the eyepiece because then you would fog the film it's not like in video. And I'm crying, I'm trying to hold it together and they're chanting and it's, and and crying. And then at some point they go out the door with the little basket and the door open and all this white light come in and it's, it's it's great. I mean, it's kind of, it's perfect and it's, and then they leave. And then I put the camera down and I start to sob. I mean, I've lost it. And Michael, who is so, I've never seen him like that. Who never loses his cool. Who is always, you know, is British. He doesn't get too emotional. I see Michael, and he's about to to lose it. He just, I just went on his chest and I started to cry, and I never do that, you know. And he holds me, and and everybody's feeling. And then he said, you know, we should take we should take a little break. And we did, we went outside, took a break, got my shit together, you know, and I, I had a little boy at home who was like three or four years old. And then we went back, we went in an adjacent room with those two black ladies who had been crying and singing. They taking care of all those other kids, maybe 15 kids, some don't look too good, but some are playing and laughing, and those ladies are playing and laughing, and it's a totally different vibe. And at that moment, I just thought, you know, that idea in Buddhism of there's a time to fall apart and the time to rebuild. Those ladies are doing that every day. They fall apart and then they rebuild, like in the space of half an hour, 45 minutes. They were crying, holding a little dead child. And now they're there with those kids who need who need laughter and love and attention and rebuild. And it's one of the most, if not the most emotional moment of my documentary career. So Michael, thank you for taking me to so many amazing adventures. Thank you for being who you were. And uh, who knows, we meet again in another world.
2: So that was Maurice Alberti a really emotional, amazing story. And uh, next up, we have John Benham, who has an interesting story about shooting in the Sudan for Nat Geo.
11: This story takes place in the country of Sudan. I'd been assigned to document the migration of white-eared cob, which are basically these gorgeous antelope that have these brilliant tornado-like antlers and they're one of the largest biomass migrations on the planet, sort of like the wildebeest in the Masai Mara that we've all seen and loved. And my job was to go there and film the sort of spectacle of the large groups moving through the countryside. Sudan had just come off of a 25-year-long civil war and it was a dangerous location to go to we had to get permission from the state department because there were routing groups of rebels and fighters who were out on the countryside and uh, we were bringing equipment and gear and helicopters and things that were restricted once we headed out there in 2009 the country had just sort of reopened itself Uh, we were literally the first crew allowed back in there to sort of roam free and and document the countryside and the species and all the animals and, and film some of the culture we really had no idea where the animals were biologists weren't really sure how many of the animals still were living they they knew kind of the area where they live and, and the area that they roam in so we took a plane up a cessna and sort of mapped out with a gps uh, a road through the territory around lakes and rivers and things like that where there were no roads. We knew that our little convoy of lorries and four-wheel drive vehicles, we just had to kind of make the road up ourselves and figure it out. And so there was a lot of fear of old landmines from the war and there's really nothing out there. The armies had used the national park that we were trying to film in as their base, they had literally killed and eaten all the other animals. And the only reason these white-eared cob survived was that they constantly were on the move. So that's what made it such a compelling story was that as a species, their migration is what saved them from imminent death and hunting and poaching and things like that during the war. After we mapped out this sort of aerial, handheld GPS marker map, very rudimentary way to kind of get around. We went off road, it took us about two or three days to drive through the countryside. We were kind of stopping and starting, moving around a lot. And on occasion, we'd have to cross these rivers. Oftentimes we'd have to get out and move rocks and large logs, you know, crocodile infested waters. That was nerve wracking enough. On our second night, we came to what looked like a town and a couple people kind of came out into the road and they were in army sort of fatigues. Which sort of made us really nervous we'd heard that there were kind of roaming bands of people with weapons and kind of still living the uh military life and so when these guys came out on the road and stopped our little convoy of vehicles we had no idea what to expect and they kind of demanded we pull off the road and join them at their sort of little encampment we didn't really have a choice i mean they had guns and You know, AK 47s and things like that. So it wasn't really an option. They kind of insisted that we stop and join them. Most of them were very drunk, and I would say it was probably like 10 or 11 at night. They wanted us to sit around the fire and talk with them and drink, and really what they wanted was a bunch of our food. So we kind of you know, hung out all night. We we set up camp there, gave them bags of rice and different bits of our supplies, and then got out of there as quick as we could in the morning before all the hungover military guys got up for breakfast. So we split, and we didn't know exactly what to. Expect we'd heard from some people that we stopped to talk to that they had seen the herds, and you know they kind of pointed us in different directions, but we really were just kind of like needle in a haystack looking for them. The first time we laid eyes on them uh, was really exciting. It was this you know. We'd spent three and a half days looking for them. It was their first time that species being filmed in, say, 30 years or so. So it felt like a really exciting, you know, cathartic kind of moment. We'd been through a lot of, like, breakdowns and missing tires, poisonous snakes in our in our tents and things like that. So we were kind of already worn out. So things went really well. We got incredible material. We filmed for about nine or 10 days, and then we started to prepare our gear for returning. We had a, a military escort of, I would say, about eight or nine guys that were armed. They were sent by the government to kind of stay with us and protect us and you know offer support and security. And so on the day that we were planning to start to drive back, the, the three day drive back, these military officers informed us that we were not free to go, that the money that they were being paid was not enough, um, even though we didn't have control over what they were being paid by the state or by the, by the government. They claimed that they needed more money, they needed double what, the, what they were promised, and they needed it now before we left or they could not guarantee our safety. They were essentially making passive threats about what would happen if we didn't pay up and didn't give them x y and z we had a helicopter there with a uh, cineflex camera system built on that some guys had come up from south africa with and when they got wind of what was happening we had a private powwow with them and they said listen put all your non-essential gear on the lorries for the guys to drive back and we will ferry you and the crew and your critical camera equipment directly to the airport where they were heading. Basically just helping us to avoid spending three days with this very suspect group of military officers who were now sort of threat, you know, passively threatening our safety. You know, we had some arguments about the money. We ended up just giving them payment or partial payment of what they were asking for just to kind of smooth things over so that we could pack the helicopter and get the heck out of there. But it took three trips in the helicopter to get All of our stuff and each of us to the airport and it wasn't even like sort of a international airport it was just a regional un airport that offered support back in the days during the civil war so it was just a dirt track but a place that fixed-wing aircraft could come and pick us up so they ferried us one at a time with equipment back and forth to this small little airport and we started the track home but all in all it's just there were lots of (laughs) breakdowns and food charges and it called on all of your senses and all of your survival skills to kind of make it through that two-week, three-week period. I've never had a shoot like that where there were so many unknown factors and so many obstacles on the way to creating images and documenting our subjects. That's probably the most intense war story that I've ever been involved in.
3: All right, that was John Benham. And uh, up next is Roberto Schaefer. A classic. War. A classic war story that we're bringing in. And, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to set it up too much, but it's from the movie Quantum of Solace.
12: We're shooting one of the final scenes of Quantum of Solace in Bacadano, Chile, where Camille and James are in his Ford Edge, driving past the little cemetery where her relatives are buried. They've killed the general, and everything's basically cool, but he still has demons. We're having this really really like intense discussion inside the car and we have a technocrane we're pushing into this closer through the windshield and two cameras rolling for singles through the windows. And suddenly we start hearing all the squawking on the walkies that are coming through and the walkies are supposed to be turned off while we're shooting but the squawking is here hear AD voices going stop that car, stop that car, stop that car. And they're yelling in Spanish and they're yelling in English and um, and we look up the hill while we're shooting, and I see that there's this jeep careening wildly down this dirt road, and it just keeps coming, and they, somebody jumps in front of it, and the guy just goes right through the person, knocks him over. and they got away the last second. And the car pulls to a stop right in front of A camera, and halfway through B camera, and the guy jumps out of the car and slams the door and starts screaming and saying, you've got to stop, shut down, you're shut down, you can't shoot here, This is this is my property, you can't be here. And it turns out it was the mayor of the town who decided that he was either gonna extort for more money because we all had our permits and everything, or he was just trying to make a statement for his people because he's running for re-election. But he's stamping and thing, and thing, Daniel's sitting in the car looking like, what the hell is going on? And Olga's kind of like completely confused and Mark and I and everybody are looking at each other and the cameras are still rolling. And, uh, and then the police cars pull up. they arrest the mayor (laughs) because he had no right to do that. And we had permits and the police said, Mr. Mayor coming with us in Spanish and put him in handcuffs and took him off to the local who's And then 15 minutes later, we continued filming and finished the scene. I have the newspaper from the next day from the Bacadano daily news or whatever it's called with a picture of the mayor getting arrested for Stopping the James Bond movie from filming in his town was pretty funny.
3: All right. That was Roberto Schaefer. And up next, here's one that no one here was expecting. Ben Rock. Ben Rock's got a war story. Yes. Yes. It's you. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) And let's roll Ben Rock's
2: war story. Can't wait to hear this. So this is like 1996 and I'm still living in Orlando. I just graduated from the University of Central Florida. I get hired to be an art department PA on an alpha insurance commercial shooting in Wachula, Florida. Wachula is maybe an hour and a half out of Orlando. And my friend Corey Bessinger is the boom guy on it. And we find out that we're both working on it. And so we were like, hey, it's a long drive. Let's just get a hotel out there. We'll split a hotel. So Cory and I split a hotel room in Wachula. So it was one of the first times I'd ever been an art department PA. And art department PAs are responsible for uh, moving everything that is not designed to be moved. We had to empty a hayloft from one barn and fill it into another barn. And then after that shooting day, take all the hay and put it back into the original barn. We were simulating a hurricane, so uh, I spent uh, like probably about half a day standing in front of a Ritter fan with also hay and uh, Fuller's earth throwing it into the, into the wind stream of, of a Ritter fan. A Ritter fan, it's like a, a single prop plane propeller inside a fan casing that just creates an enormous amount of wind. and it's, They're designed for film sets so that you can do the kinds of things we were doing, i.e. creating a hurricane. Fuller's Earth is sort of, it's an art department thing. Actually, it probably causes mesothelioma or something. (coughs) It's fake dirt. It's fake dirt, fake dust. It's very tight and tiny and granular, as I recall. It's been a a few decades since I've handled lots of Fuller's Earth. You probably shouldn't be breathing it all day. I think we all had like dust masks or something on for the Fuller's Earth, but yeah, pretty gross stuff. Somebody taught me how to build a scaffold. And so after I learned how to build a scaffold, it was, you know, adhered would hear it on the, on the radio, Ben and scaffold crew come to set. And I would have to build the scaffold wherever they were. I don't know how to build a scaffold. You know, like they just showed me how to do it. We're lucky nobody ever died. They were putting the cameras up on this thing and I'm like, 24 years old building a scaffold with like you know a couple other uh dumb fucks you know also there's no greens men on this no no i guess greens person so the art department PAs, like where we were trying to make it look like there was overgrowth or even just dressing uh plants around a set we'd have to go to the nursery we would have to pick them up and put them in the truck and drive the truck back and unload them and it was physically exhausting we were there an hour before anyone showed up on set every day we were there an hour after everybody left set every day it is by far the most physically exhausting thing I have ever done in my life until I had a baby. So I'm at the hotel room with uh, my friend Corey. I make the mistake of comparing how much we're each getting paid to work on this commercial for alpha insurance. And cause I think as an art department PA, I was making either $50 a day or $75 a day. It wasn't much. Corey on the other hand was making like $350 a day. And so I said to Corey, why is it that I am there so many more hours than you? And I'm not saying you shouldn't get paid more or that what you're doing isn't specialized, but honestly, you have to hold a stick in the air for about two minutes every three hours. And I'm getting back to our hotel room. Like literally cu- with Fuller's Earth caked into, into my skin at this point. Like I'm, I'm more Fuller's Earth than person at the end of a day. And he said, oh, yeah, I can tell you why. Because my job is boring. And if they didn't pay me enough, I would leave. And I thought, oh, I'm getting paid in excitement. Yeah. So that was that prick, Ben Rock, uh, <laughs> oh, man. super, super disgruntled art dog, Ben Rock. Oof. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think yeah. I don't think he has a future in that at all.
3: All right, Ben, that does it. War Story 6 is in the can. I know we got War Story 7 coming up right away, but uh, maybe there'll be right something away. for me in there. Yeah, right away. I think we're going to we're going <laughs> to plow into War Story 7 right away. I think I think that that's in the works right, right. now. We're, we're making it happen. Cool. Well, before we go, who should we thank? Hey, let's thank Alana Cody. I know she works uh, really hard on putting this together. Uh, let's also thank Ben Katz. I know that he also works really hard to put these together. Really hard. All, those music and sound effects just don't, you know, fly in there on their own. That that takes uh, that takes time and people. No, the war
2: stories, that's like, that's real craft going on there. It's and not that it isn't real craft when, in cutting an interview. It's It's an invisible craft. When, when editing an interview when uh, when editing this kind of stuff though it's like he really gets to get creative and shine so it's exciting to hear what he does and then of course uh, we should thank uh, Kay's Zalatrakshi who is not listening to this episode. Ilya where can people find you? Uh, find me over at Hot Rod Cameras Ben where can people find you? benrockonline.com. Please go check it out. I've had several people recently, uh, add me on the LinkedIn, uh, I, and say that it was through the cinematography podcast. Please feel free to, uh, reach out. It's always nice to hear from people who listen to this because that's why we do it. Yep. And until next week, thanks
3: very much for listening.